Hey there, Agility friend. If you've listened to a few of my podcast episodes, you know that I'm a huge fan of something called growth mindset. You can have access to the best instruction in the world, and you can have the best dog in the world and the best skills in the world. But if you don't have a solid mindset and approach to the challenges that sport and life are going to toss your way, you're not going to be able to really make the most of all of those bests that you have, you know, best instruction, best dog, best skills, all that stuff. I'm so passionate about the importance of our mindset when it comes to dog agility and really everything in life that I've written an ebook about growth versus fixed mindset, what the hallmarks of those two mindsets are, and how one can really propel you along your agility journey, and one may really be holding you back, maybe without you even being aware of it. That ebook is not for sale anywhere, but it is available for free to subscribers of my email list. So if you're curious about what a growth mindset is, what a fixed mindset is, and how to ensure that you've got the right mindset for making the most of your dog agility training and handling journey, head to podcast.theagilitychallenge.com and scroll down till you see the link to subscribe to my email list and get that ebook. It's totally free and it's a game changer. Check it out today at podcast.theagilitychallenge.com. Welcome to the Agility Challenge Podcast. I'm your host, Daisy Peel. Join me as I talk about everything related to the mental side of the sport of dog agility. If you've ever felt overwhelmed by negative self-talk or lack of confidence, or if your dog training to-do list just seems so long that you don't even know where to get started, this podcast is for you. You can have the best training and the best skills and the best dog and access to the best trainers, coaches, and instructors in the world. But if you don't have your mental game under control, you'll never be able to successfully use all those skills you have to the best of your abilities. Now, let's dive into today's episode, episode number 24. I am so excited to introduce this podcast episode to you. This is such an incredible way to start off the new year. Happy New Year, by the way. This year, I'm starting off the podcast season, season two of the Agility Challenge podcast with an interview. In this episode, I have just a really fantastic conversation with Kelly Daniel of Hybrid Dog Training in New Zealand. Now, Kelly's been a contributor at the Agility Challenge, my online dog agility training platform, for several years now. And each month, she contributes canine fitness content and canine mindfulness content, both of which I think are just so important. Her approach to canine mindfulness and fitness just fits right in with all of the mindset and mental game challenges that I love so much about dog agility for us as handlers and trainers, and that I talk about all the time in this podcast, as well as at the Agility Challenge, which you can find at www.theagilitychallenge.com. Before we dive into our conversation, which by the way, we are for sure going to do more of, I want to give you a little background on Kelly. So Kelly lives in New Zealand, and her education and background have come together in a perfect storm to allow her to really get the idea of mindfulness for our dogs when it comes to sport. She's got a degree in zoology and anatomy and physiology. She's a dog trainer. She's a dog agility competitor, and she is an instructor. And also she's like me. I mean, she, I was a secondary or high school teacher. She still is a secondary school teacher, which is high school for those of us in North America. So she just has this perfect combination of knowledge and the heart of a teacher. And I just, I really enjoyed spending this time with her, quote unquote, in person. And I know you're going to love this podcast episode. 
I'll remind you again at the end, but I'd really love to hear your comments and questions on this one because Kelly and I are already making plans to record more of these conversations. And I just know that after listening to this one, that like me, you're going to have all sorts of thoughts and questions swirling around in your head. So leave a comment on the show page for this episode, either at podcast.theagilitychallenge.com or if you're an Agility Challenge member at www.theagilitychallenge.com. And I'll put it on my pile of questions for my next conversation with Kelly. But for now, let's just dive into the deep end, my conversation with Kelly Daniel. Happy New Year. How long have you been doing agility? And this kind of goes in line with the um, podcast I just put out on the ignition. How did you get into the sport? Um. So my first dog that was my own dog instead of a family dog, Um was after I finished university and I got a Husky cross border collie. So a cyborg, which was not an ideal first dog because he had no recall. He was really pretty, but he didn't really have any drive to do anything other than wander around on his own. Um, So I started with obedience with him. It must've been about 15, 16 years ago now. Um, And we kind of got booted out of obedience because he failed the like obedience class and we got held back six times in a row so we went to agility instead because it seemed more fun (laughs) so that's how long I've been doing dog sports for I started um, agility with him he did it for the cookies he wasn't fast we didn't know what we're doing with the training but we both had a lot of fun so sort of kept going from from him yeah from Brody (laughs) your cyborg that seems to be a pretty common story about you know we we failed obedience for one reason or another and then just got totally hooked in agility yeah and it was back in the day as well where obedience was still quite far behind agility so it was still quite old school he was quite a soft boy um like we still competed in rally and obedience and tricks and everything that we could but like I didn't have enough training understanding to like train a dumbbell retreat and that was back in the day where you were told to put a check collar on them and pull the chain up under his neck so he'd hold the dumbbell and I wasn't okay with that so that's the other reason that I really switched across to um, agility because back then it was a lot more positive and advanced with the training mechanics which I enjoyed yeah people were people were trying to figure out how do we get the dogs to do these things when they're not on leash and discovering pretty quickly that you can't use methods that worked when they're on leash because then as soon as they have the opportunity to leave they do that (laughs) they leave but he was well known for in the ring and obedience on a recall I'd call him he'd sprint towards me exactly halfway he'd turn 90 degrees and haul ass out of the ring and leave (laughs) like just for fun because he liked to run for no other reason (laughs) so yeah those things didn't work on him So from there, how did you end up getting into the canine conditioning aspect of the sport specifically? Uh, It was really from Brody as well. So from that first dog, I started a lot of trick training with him. He did well in the trick training and I enjoyed the sort of challenge of teaching quite intricate uh, tricks. But what I found with Brody is that for some of the tricks, he got quite sore from um, the way that I was teaching them. So he used to get quite sore on the neck and we ended up going to the physio and the chiropractor quite a lot for him. Um, And we sort of 
trained it we, we went backwards and found out it was because of these tricks mm-hmm. um so I looked at changing how I taught the tricks and that kind of led naturally to canine fitness exercises as an alternative way to teach um teach the tricks and then that really tied into my background in terms of zoology and the geeky science-ness I really enjoyed the biomechanics and the geekiness of canine fitness training so that's what made me head in that direction so I guess we better back up and ask you about your zoology history. Yep. Um, so I've got a zoology degree and then I've got a master's in physiology and then I'm trained as, as a secondary um, biology teacher. Okay. Secondary secondary school, which is our high school in New Zealand. So you have all the pieces perfectly aligned, the, the zoology, the physiology, and then the teaching skills as well. Yeah. And I came from from a competitive basketball background. So I was a representative basketball player. So I kind of had that sports background as well, which kind of tied it all together in terms of the biomechanics, but also the specificity of the exercises to the sport that you want to do. That's super cool. Very cool. And I, I guess I didn't even ever think about my dogs needing a warm up or or even any sort of conditioning to just teach tricks. But when you, I mean, no. now that you mentioned it, I, I mean, it makes total sense. They're doing things pretty slow, often very sustained. That could be really well, hard no, for them. I didn't think about it either. And the thing with him is this, that was the thing that he really put his full enthusiasm into. Um, So he would do like a, one of his tricks was a combat dive roll where he'd jump over my leg, twist in the air into a, um, a rollover and then land on a side on the floor. And he would do that at full speed on any surface with no regard for his body whatsoever. And that's the sort of thing he would do that would get him hurt. And that's really why I had to look into sort of how I was warming up and the conditioning that he was doing alongside the tricks. So he probably also, if I had to guess, got you interested in the, um, the mental aspect of the sport. So you have this dog who you're not really sure how to help him want to be there um, who also needs this conditioning. So is that kind of how you got into the mental management aspect of the sport for the dogs as well? No. Well, to be fair, he was pretty easygoing. He'd do whatever I wanted as long as there was treats involved. Generally, he would just do, he just had like, he was kind of ADHD. He had a really short attention span and easily distracted. And that was workable. Um, it was kind of the next couple of dogs that I got really, that got me into, um, really that that mental side of the game as well as the physical side um so chase my chocolate merle border collie she's 13 now she was my first like serious agility dog because she was a border collie so she's going to be you know the proper agility dog that wanted to do the agility um but she is incredibly dog reactive to 100 percent of dogs within about a 10 meter bubble um she can't deal so that was really what started me down the behavior aspect in terms of sporting dogs because I'd got this this dog for agility who liked to train and liked to do the things and had a bit more speed than the cyborg, was put together a little bit better. Um, but she it was the other stuff. So the anxiety and the stress and um how I trained agility made a big impact for her because if I did it wrong, she really, really, really struggled. Yeah. I feel like a lot, I, I mean, I feel like the um, the mental aspect of it is getting more and more important because we want our dogs to be increasingly responsive to all of these things that are happening on course. And I, I feel kind of like responsive and reactive are two sides of 
the same coin. So we breed these dogs or we get these dogs um, and we work real hard on motivating them and getting them really amped up. Um, or we get dogs that are really responsive and then we're surprised when they are also tending towards reactivity. Um, what do you thought, what are your thoughts on that? I think it's a real issue. Um, I've talked about this to other people before, especially overseas people. I don't think in New Zealand we have very many well-bred border collies. The vast majority of the border collies that I come across and see have structural issues, but most relevant to this, I guess, I would say 95% have behavioral and temperament issues, whether that be that they get over aroused and a lot of them become over aroused and reactive, or whether they be sort of that more lower, we call it lower drive, but stressy and scared end of the spectrum. And a lot of them also become reactive. Yeah. Um, resource guardian is also hugely, pre- hugely prevalent in the border collies that I see here. And all of that, I think, ties together to make a really tricky agility dog. That's yeah. hard. Yeah, I tend to agree. I think um, the and then I think the flip side of that that I have actually seen on more than one occasion is now I see I see the opposite side of that. Also, I see people will have a client come through that has really a very stable dog with a very stable, solid temperament. Um, and they, and the dog's not stressed. It's not stressed high. It's not stressed low. It's, um, but it's not moving as fast or explosively as they would like. And I have to explain to them, look, you have this dog that when I look at it, I think this dog looks very stable. I think this dog is going to be highly functioning in a highly arousing environment. And where we are right now is not highly arousing. Um, And so you might have to put a little work into creating arousal so that you understand how things are going to work in the non-arousing. I'm going to mess it up, but you kind of get the idea when you have a real stable dog, it's, it may require a little bit more effort and creativity to get them to a state of arousal where you expect them to be at a big event. But on the flip side of that, they might not be blowing it out of the water at a local show, but then you get them to a big event and they actually do get aroused and they're still functional. So it's kind of an interesting. Yeah. And the problem is, is that novice trainers don't want that dog. Right. They want the fast, crazy dog. And I don't think a lot of trainers when they're starting out, understand the implications of the work that comes with that. I will take that stable dog that I can train new behaviors easy without stress, without arousal or or stressing out, and then know that I can amp them up and speed them up, especially with things like my handling position. I'll take that dog any day. And I think that that's a perfect dog for a novice handler, but that's not the type of dog that the novice handlers tend to get. There's a reason that I have spaniels now. And that's because my grid is super soft. He's this, he's literally like curled up on my feet right now um, next to the cat, cuddling me like an idiot. But he is like, he's quite a stressy dog, but he is calm when he's learning new behaviors. He's thoughtful, even under high distractions. I have a lot of birds that um, swoop from my property and that's really hard for a gun dog. Yeah. But he learns things fast and when he's got it, he's got it. And I know that I can get speed and amp him up when he's got it and like I'll take that any day over a crazy dog that's going to get to the point where they can't think and they can't perform behaviors under certain conditions 
Yeah, it's real tricky. And so, and so for people like you who are um, helping people deal with arousal, there's really that sort of multiple pronged approach where you have to help people with the dog they have who might be really nervy learn how yeah. to, okay, well, your dog, <clears throat> whether it's stressing high or stressing low, it might actually be from some of the same root causes. And then how will you choose a little bit differently potentially for a future dog? And then what's the training implications of that future dog who, when you get them, you're like, well, this dog's just a lump. I can't get this dog to, you know, why is this dog just laying around? What a lazy pillow. Um, <laughs> yeah. There's a lot of angles you have to come at that from. Yeah, there is. So I want to ask you a couple of questions that agility challenge members posed. And I think this first one's a pretty interesting one that, that you'll be able to uniquely answer with your educational background, your the zoology background. Um, the member asked for dogs with high drive that increases to higher levels at trials, is there anything we should or can do to counteract the effects of the various hormones released? Is normal physical conditioning sufficient? And should we incorporate massage therapy into our cool down routine? Now that might be multiple questions, but I'm kind of curious what your response is going to be to that first one. What what happens when the when various hormones are released? And is there any what can we do to counteract some of that? That I saw that in the office hours. That is an awesome question. Um, and yes, there definitely is. So I guess the first thing to know is that although specific research isn't super clear on how long it takes for dogs' hormones to decrease, um, a dog that's under high stress and or high arousal is going to have stress-related hormones and also adrenaline released. The adrenaline hormone is going to be relatively short-lived um, in terms of that hormone impact, but though the cortisol and the hormones related to stress um, the research says that it's going to take at least 72 hours for those to clear your dog's body. So this is why it's really important over a trial to manage your dog appropriately and manage their arousal and or their stress. Because if you have a hugely ridiculous first run, you've got potential because that hormone, that hormone surge is going to stay there for the whole rest of the trial. So you really have potential to ruin the rest of your weekend if you don't manage your dog carefully at the start. It's also cumulative. So if you have a moderately arousing run and then a moderately arousing run and then a moderately arousing run, your dog is going to reach threshold because those hum those hormones are going to accumulate, accumulate as you go. If you manage your dog and keep them low and keep them low and keep them low, you've got more chance of success over the whole weekend and more chance of preventing them from reaching threshold. This is really important because with my ridiculous Border Collie, and his temperament is amazing. That's why I have him. However, he is over aroused only in agility trials, not in training, not anywhere else. Um, if the first run is one that I know he does not have the skills under arousal to perform, I will scratch him and not run him because then I have ruined any chance at future runs that weekend. Because if he loses his, if he goes beyond the threshold in that first run, I'm likely not going to get him back beyond threshold for the rest of the weekend. So that's kind of the first thing to consider. Um, the second thing to consider is that a dog under high amounts of stress and or adrenaline 
um, is not going to feel any minor injuries that might occur because they're going to be too over aroused. So you need to manage their body in the ring and you need to take more care calling them down to watch for any potential issues that might be arising over the weekend. They're not going to feel anything. Evo could literally run with three legs and have one leg hanging off him in the agility run and be like, I'm good. It's amazing. I love it. <laughs> and that would be him. Um, one weekend a while ago, he um, slipped going over an A-frame and slipped on a striding down. And it was a very minor slip. But when I pulled him out and, call- and called him down, I noticed some abnormal curling of his fur. So his back was sore. He was still amping to go and he ran later runs fine. But that was something to be aware of. So those dogs, we need to take more care calling them down. So a longer cool down period of um, some trotting and some walking and really watching their striding and their body. Um, And then careful warming up before like subsequent runs. Over the weekend, I don't tend to have time personally to do any massage on my dogs. And in that show environment, my dog is likely to not relax enough for it to be effective. However, at night, I definitely try and do time permitting a small amount of body work. That's mostly so I can feel for any areas of potential issue. So heat or tightness or fascial adhesions. So I can consider whether I should run my dog the next day. So yes, body work would be helpful. Um, For those dogs, a longer cool down period. So you can really watch as that adrenaline comes down to whether they're sore is really important. And then over the days after the trial, you have to manage your dog's body. So an enforced rest period, an active rest period with some sniffing and some walking and some active stretches and some body work, again, to help them relax and to feel for any issues um, that might arise after the trial. Um, I also try to incorporate over that period because most of these dogs tend to want to do things, um, decompression activities, whatever helps your dog react relax so sniffing and chewing a big one so my dogs get bones or um, kongs to chew on just to kind of enforce that cool down period after a trial so i want to kind of loop back to something that you said pretty early on when you mentioned you said you want to keep them low but that doesn't necessarily mean um calm it just means you want to keep them below of, you want to keep them from basically just flooding with all that cortisol, right? Like they can be, yeah. you want them to be prepared for sport, but not over threshold basically. Yeah. So I want to keep them low enough to stay under threshold. So they are able to respond to my cues adequately that they understand uh, for the high arousal dogs. I don't have to like for my high arousal dogs, I don't have to work on getting speed in yeah. the ring, especially in the ring environment. Yeah. So it's all about keeping them low enough to be able to respond adequately to, to cues. Yeah. That's super interesting that you, like I never had really thought about the ramifications of the cumulative effects of the cortisol because my, so I have two dogs right now and they're both pretty young. They're both under three and they're definitely getting better just by leaps and bounds, not only in terms of their skills, but in terms of making it to the end of a weekend. So there would be um, you know, if we have a multiple day show, the first few runs would be pretty decent, you know, not, maybe not a clean run, but they were thinking, but then by the end of the weekend earlier, you know, like eight months ago, the first run of the second day, I could tell we're about to be done. And then maybe the second run of the second day, it's almost useless to keep running them because they're running 
but there's not really much thoughtfulness. So that kind of makes sense in the, when you frame it that way, um, just the, the cumulative effects of the, the cortisol, they're just gone. Their brains are just toast. They're just toast. It's also, it's also the physical impact. Like a weekend trial is really hard physically on dogs. I think we underestimate that sometimes because they will keep doing it generally. But when you combine that with that hormone influence and the arousal and the adrenaline and the other things, um, that's why I have absolutely no, for me personally, if I don't think a run has, a, a course has, you know, the design or the spacing or my dog has the adequate skills for it, I am happy to scratch my dog or use it for training sure. because I know that's going to be best for my dog long term and also for me and my dog enjoying that weekend. Right. You have a lot of squinting going on right now <laughs> with the spaniel <laughs> wanting to be petted. Yeah. I recognize I know. the squinting. Mushy He's face. ridiculous. He <laughs> wants to climb on my lap, but he'll literally knock everything off the table if he does. <laughs> so is it is it is it um is it appropriate to say then that the goal of a lot of the canine mindfulness challenges that you offer in the agility challenge, the, that the goal of those is to help not necessarily to bring the dog's overall energy level down, but to raise their to sort of raise and lengthen their tolerance for um, the conditions where they have to perform so that they don't go over threshold as early and they can be in increasingly arousing situations without going over threshold. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, definitely. Um, I'd also say a lot of them are about you learning to read your dog and respond appropriately. A lot of people when they're starting out lack the skills to really see when their dog is starting to stress or starting to become over aroused. Um, and then having strategies in place to work on that. So I kind of think about it as a normal distribution curve. And in the middle is that optimal amount of arousal or drive or whatever you want to call it. Um, I'm really trying to use my management and my training skills to maintain my dog to be in the middle. So I don't want my dog to be over aroused and unable to respond to cues. I don't want my dog to be stressed and to be fearful and to be not enjoying that environment and the skills I'm asking them to do. I want them to be comfortable enough in that middle place and be able to ignore whatever is going on in the environment around them so they're able to respond to cues appropriately. When they can do that, the speed and the enthusiasm will come. Right. So you kind of want to you kind of want to grow that curve so that it's broader and it's more like a plateau at the top yep. and not just a steep up down jump off yeah, the definitely. right away. Yeah, I need to have a range within there because there are times when I do want to deliberately lower my dog's arousal, like around the call board before I'm about to go into the ring. I don't want to be amping them up right then because that is when issues are going to occur, from, not for my dogs, but for other people managing their dogs. I'm mm-hmm. not going to stand around the call board dotting my dog, and that's what we do in New Zealand, and like playing tug and amping my dog up if they're a lower dog, because that's not fair. So yeah, I need a wide range where I know my dog is happy and able to work either if I'm being lower energy or if I'm in high energy. And I need to be able to have that option to switch between those modes for me as a handler and my dog happy and able to respond appropriately. I feel like we're going to need a part two. (laughs) That's fine. We can do that. (laughs) Because my next, I mean, there were a couple of other questions that I, if we have time, I'll, I'll come, I'll loop back to them, but I want to kind of stick with this more because the questions that I had for you were more along the lines of the, of the question that the agility challenge member had just asked, because what I am curious about is 
So when you you talked about the um, going over threshold and and making sure that the dog is in the optimal threshold, so when it comes to people, there are things that we can do um, by choice to put ourselves in situations where we're uncomfortable and kind of stressed, but then we come out the other side of it and we feel a sense of accomplishment. So from here's a very simple example, taking a cold shower in the morning is a, is a form of um, subjecting yourself by choice to a stress. It's very unpleasant, even for 10 seconds and maybe not for you in the middle of the summer right now, but um, no, no, I'd, I would still struggle with that. I'm a wuss with coldness. Yeah, so. <laughs> it's very unpleasant. Um, but once you do it for 10 or 15 seconds and you come out the other side and you realize, well, I didn't die. Uh, I don't really want to do that again, but boy, I feel like I really accomplished something. And you, you do actually grow a little bit in terms of your ability to deal with challenge. And so, so people do that all the time. We go to the gym, we, even going to a competition in front of our peers can be uncomfortable and challenge us. And so how do we do that with the dogs? I mean, we can't, it just seems to me, we can't make our goal to provide them with the the most comfortable bed and the best food and the most creature comforts and never expose them to any stress or discomfort whatsoever, and then expect them to function in unfamiliar environments. Of course, on the other hand, with people, we do that by choice. And so how do we get the dog involved in the idea of choosing? Well, I don't know, I'm going to do this, but I, I choose to do it, but it's uncomfortable for the purposes of growth in terms of mental resilience. Yeah. Um, this is something that I've sort of done increasingly as I've got new dogs. Um, first and foremost, I'd like to say that if you're searching for an agility dog, a young agility dog, um, a good sports dog breeder will be doing these things with their puppies already. So a sports breeder that a sports specific breeder or a dog breeder that is following um a program like Puppy Culture or the Avi Dog program or just using those concepts will already be doing this with your puppy. They'll be exposing them to small amounts of stresses and helping those puppies work through those and have success and have confidence. Um, I've got a friend at the moment with a working retriever litter, Alex, and he's doing a phenomenal job with his puppies. And he's doing micro doses of stress that is manageable for them that they are able to get through and then have confidence and have a high reinforcement for doing that. So small training games, activities, barrier challenges, all of those things can be started with very small puppies, especially before they go through any stress periods when they're teenagers where they can be a lot more difficult. So when I'm working on resilience with my dogs and bravery, I like to do this outside of agility first because I don't want to screw my agility up. So if I do this and I do this badly and I'm like, you can do it around this wing jump and it's way too hard, my dog's always going to have negative conditioned and emotional response, so bad feelings to wrapping a wing. I don't want that. I don't want to screw that up. So with all of my younger dogs, I'm doing this in activities outside of agility to start with, and then I will increase the challenge in training and in the competition ring to make sure that my dog can deal with it. But I also make sure that I don't condition my dog to feel uncomfortable about agility. Right. So 
I do this through training specific behaviors that are outside of agility. So trick training and fitness training. Um, but I also do this with bravery based exercises that teach my dogs that there is a challenge. It's uncomfortable. You can figure it out on your own and then you get highly reinforced for doing so. So we need to balance the feelings of uncomfortableness with that challenge with the high reinforcement rate. And that's really, I think, the key to your dog welcoming further challenges later on. So if they go through um, and do a barrier challenge and they get a little bit stressed to start with and then they get one cookie for doing that, I don't think that's sufficient um, reinforcement rate for the the stress that they've gone through to do that activity. Right. Yeah. So does that make sense? Yeah, it totally does. Yeah. I mean, we, I did some, uh, when I bred a litter, the litter of the puppies that we have now, the puppies are almost three. Um, we did some of those. <laughs> That's still did, puppies. <laughs> yeah, they're still puppies. We did those kinds of barrier challenges and they were, you know, when they're really young, it's just a, a toy that they have to scramble over to get to the mom to nurse, just those sorts of things. And then of course they scramble over this obstacle to get to the mother and they get sort of the ultimate reinforcement which is sustenance yeah and grooming and comfort yeah it's about continuing that with the new handler though as well because um when a puppy leaves the comfort of mum and home and the other puppies um we really need your dog to see you as the person that will provide support when needed Otherwise, they're not going to have the confidence to do the difficult things. So I'm looking to teach my dogs to have confidence that they can do it on their own. But I also need them to know that I'm there for them. So it is quite a delicate balance. And for some dogs, you've got to sway the balance in one way. And some dogs, you've got to push them in the other direction. So there's some dogs that have too much confidence that I want to be like, hey, I'm here. You know, you need to listen to me. Mm -hmm. And other dogs, I really need to push and boost. You can do it on your own. Greta is one of those dogs that I really have to push that he can do it on his own because if he had his way, he would be here 90% of the day, like literally physically attached to me because <laughs> that's just what he's like. Yeah. Yeah. That's just such interesting. Those things are so interesting for me to think about, especially when like that all sounds well and good. Um, and if you have a degree in education and you know how to teach the youth of today, the leaders of tomorrow, that's all well and good. Um, and but it, then it kind of rolls right into it's kind of like parenting, you know, um, and then with the so there's that kind of wrapped into it you have to you have to be skilled as a trainer skilled as a handler skilled as an owner skilled as a teacher skilled as a coach and then if you have any performance anxiety of your own to deal with when you step into the competition ring now you have to tell your dog that everything's going to be okay when your body is responding as though a tiger is chasing you and you're giving off all sorts of stress hormones that your dog yeah. probably can smell Oh, no, definitely. Think about all those medical alert dogs. There's dogs that can literally read your cardiac output increasing like by minute amount or your glucose level. They can tell. Yeah. They can most definitely tell when the handler is stressed. Um, that's why I make people do pattern games because those pattern games not only settle the dog, they settle the handler as well. I've got some um, students that I make do counting pattern games as part of their warm-up activity. Describe, describe person, to me real quick what a pattern, an example of a pattern game. Okay, so an example of a pattern game. So for me, for grid, 
you know, the whole like spaniels, don't let them sniff. It's the end of the world. Um, we literally start in the marshalling area with uh, he comes in, he does some behaviors on cue and I feed him. And then I stand there and as normal, I try and remember the course. That usually fills me with a small amount of stress. So right. I stand and face the course and I throw one treat to the side. He comes back to me. I throw one treat to the other side. He comes back to me. I throw one treat to the other side. So I'm standing facing the course and he's running side to side in front of me in a marshalling area doing a pattern of search, look at mum, search, mm. look at mum, search, look at mum. That rhythmic activity, mm-hmm. that rhythmic pattern soothes me as well as him (laughs) sure and it really gives him an opportunity to um take in the environment and do some sniffing in a controlled way where he's not going to also i'm deliberately lowering his head because if he gets swooped with a swallow he will spend half his run lifting his head looking Mm. because he's a gun dog and that's literally bred into him um but i'm reinforcing him low on the ground to get a low head position as well so it's kind of a twofold activity um some of my really stressy handlers who just get physically I can see it I get them to do this with counting so they they do a one move to the side drop a treat come back to middle two so I'm getting them to physically count out loud drop a treat to the side come back to the middle so it's a counting out loud rhythmic pattern Mm -hmm. because they're concentrating on the counting and that moving both them and their dog will get calm that's super interesting it's hard I mean, it, to do though. Yeah, but it makes me think of, uh, and you've probably heard of this. It makes me think of another strategy. I can't remember if it was like ADHD kids or autistic kids, but it was called tapping where the kids, I think they were tapping on their face. They were, it was a method to, um, I'll have to look it up, but I, it was something along the same lines where you basically, if you're stressed or you can't concentrate, you start tapping on your face really rhythmically because the 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 rep, the repetitive nature of it and the physical nature of it just kind of takes everything down a notch. Yeah, it's physically calming. It's the same reason why for some people, not me, hugs are calming. That physical pressure it mm-hmm. um, acts on a part of your nervous system. Um, patterns for the same way can be calming. It's just a matter of finding a pattern that works for your dog because right. not all patterns will calm a dog. So with some of my dogs throwing a treat to the side, like Evo, that movement would increase his arousal. Right. So for a, a, for a border finding, collie, head down might not be what you want, but for a spaniel, head up might not be what you want. Yeah, it's a, so, so you, it's a matter of finding a pattern that works for your dog, but also for you, and also in that environment. Like I need to remember the course. I'm running multiple dogs in multiple classes, and I'm running different dogs in different ways because I have a four kg dog up to an eighteen kg dog, so all different height classes. Mm-hmm. So I need that last minute time to run through my plan in my head before we go into the ring and this way I'm not losing attention with my dog he's not getting um noticing the birds or getting stressed or I'm um, getting over aroused so this pattern works for both of us I mean all this discussion on cortisol and threshold and um we know you like the geeky science stuff too like me <laughs> I do but I but also um you know dogs are dogs and people we're we're all kind of black boxes really you just can't really know you can i mean you can measure cortisol you can chew on a sponge and spit it into a cup and all that stuff but but beyond that we can't really know unless we're really tuned in what the internal state of our dogs is and we do um you know when i first started teaching 
way back when, or when I first was working on my master's degree in education, they were really all about making sure that the learner was, was under an optimal um, mental conditions for learning. At the time I just discovered BF Skinner and I was like, I don't really care what they're feeling or thinking. I just want them to just can't, does it really matter what they're thinking if they push the, the lever correctly? Um, yes, and, it does. <laughs> yes, it does. It totally does. But you know, I was, I was pretty young and I, I was, the clicker was very exciting to me. And of course I still use a clicker, but, but there's so much more to it than just the actual behavior. And if you don't have the feelings on board, you're really just not going to get, you're not going to get it. You're not going to get what you want. Yeah. And, it, and it just brings so much into it because I mean, there's a whole other side to it that I'd really like to address in terms of um, I think a lot of people get pretty uncomfortable with the idea of trying to manipulate their dog's emotions because it yeah, is. But I think that's the most important aspect to all of this. Yeah. My goal is always to deliberately teach a behavior with deliberately aiming at a specific conditioned emotional response to that behavior. Yeah. So like literally that's how I plan to teach a behavior. So in canine fitness training, I don't want my dog to be like, yeah, we because that's not going to help me get adequate form I want them to be like oh we're doing that thing nice and yeah. calm but very yeah. happy so literally I think you have to put that into your planning for teaching our behavior this is the conditioned emotional response I would like them to have associated with it because it's going to impact how you train the the response how you reinforce the response what reinforces that you use like obviously so the example with the spaniel um i've been having weave issues because um a, so his first time weaving in the ring literally a sparrow dive bombed him and went about two inches in front of his oh. face between the weave poles oh that caused some issues yeah at home he likes to flush the sparrows out of one of my hedges so i've been reinforcing weave poles with letting them go flush the birds that's the i want him to be that aroused and weave poles and do them no matter what is happening yeah. and that is his highest reinforcer and it has yeah. a little bit of stress because he's like oh, the birds but high arousal high speed associated with it so that's a reinforcer that I'm sometimes choosing to use with him in this behavior because yeah. that's the that's the emotional response I want I want him to be like hell yeah let me do the waves because it at them after the event when I tried to go back and retrain he's like oh god not the waves right. and we go and sniff right that's not the emotions i want associated with those wave poles yeah so i changed my reinforcer and changed my approach and that we'll see how it goes you make it sound so simple but you really have to keep your finger on the pulse of how everything is you know is the behavior shaping up the way you want can you predict the consequences of what's happening in this moment and then also all the feelings yep Cool. Yeah, All right. Well, we're definitely going to do a part two because this has been so much fun. Um, thank you so much for taking time out of your busy day in New Zealand that's to right. chat with me for a little bit. We're going to do this again. Cool. No, it's been fun. Yeah. Well, I don't know about you, but I was just totally fired up after this conversation with Kelly. I'm still pretty fired up about it. It really filled up my bucket as the saying goes. I'm just so curious and I have so many questions and I can't wait until our next conversation. Like I mentioned at the top of the episode, I'd really love to hear your comments and questions on this one. Because like I mentioned, 
Kelly and I are already making plans to record more conversations. And honestly, at this point, I feel like we could have conversations all year and still have more to talk about. So leave a comment on the show page for this episode, either at podcast.theagilitychallenge.com or if you're an Agility Challenge member at www.theagilitychallenge.com and I will put it on my mountain of questions for my next conversation with Kelly. And if you want to get more involved with what Kelly has to offer, check out her website, www.hybriddogtraining.com. That's www dot hybrid dog training, all one word, hybrid dog training.com or head to www.theagilitychallenge.com. That's it for now. Until next time, happy training. Thanks for joining me on the Agility Challenge podcast with Daisy Peel. If you'd like to take your agility training, handling and mental game to the next level, check out that ebook that I mentioned at the top of the episode. You can get it for free at podcast.theagilitychallenge.com. It's not for sale anywhere, and it's only available to subscribers of my email list. Getting on board with the right mindset when it comes to your dog agility handling and training challenges is a game changer. So make sure you check it out.